Um, before we turn to the text that I want to look at, just go to Proverbs 7. I want to give you one thought that's kind of going to deal with all three messages that I give here out at the retreat. And as you're turning to Proverbs 7, here question is, have you guys ever had a friend that you met, you became friends with them, and they had a massive impact on your life? Have you ever experienced that? I mean, you just you can't imagine not having that friendship with that individual because all of the good that they have brought to you and your own soul. Right? We've experienced that with people. But look what Solomon says right here in chapter 7 of Proverbs. Listen to this. Verse 4. And we just, he just spoke earlier about keeping the teaching as an apple of your eye and binding them on your fingers and writing them on the tablet of your heart. Then he says this. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. Right? What's he talking about? Insight. A truth from the Word of God can become like an intimate friend to you. Right? And what happens with the friends that you have? When do you go to your friends? When do you go to those friends that are closest to you? Yeah, when you need help. Right? And we've got a Bible here that is loaded with truths that we want to become our intimate friends. And so the three messages that we're going to have this weekend, in a way, I'm looking at it as this. I'm trying to introduce you all to a dear friend of mine. A certain text, each time we get together, a verse that has impacted my life, and it's never left me. It's a friend I go to constantly again and again. And even the friend we're going to look at today, you're going to see this, this was an intimate friend for other godly Christians along the ages as well. And what do these friends do? Verse 4, call inside your intimate friend to do what? What does it say? To keep you from the forbidden woman. Right? So just like friendships with people, they exhort you. The Bible itself, the verses you memorize, the verses that you have written on your heart, the verses that are made real to you by the Spirit of God, that is, that's going to keep you from sin. It's going to keep you from dishonoring the Lord. These are intimate, intimate friends. I mean, you guys have verses that are intimate friends to you that you can think of? Just say the reference out loud. Say again. Okay. Yeah. So that's an intimate friend. How does that friendship help you? Okay. Who else is a friend from the Bible? Yeah. A lot of people are good friends with that text, right? And for good reason. What's another verse? Anyone? You guys need to have more friends. Yeah. Yeah, amen. So, I'm going to introduce you to one friend right now, another tonight, and another tomorrow night. And these are passages of Scripture that I'm going to try to unpack so you can see what it's saying. And I hope it will really stay with you as it stayed with me. And it's been a great benefit to my soul. Now, before I have you turn to the text, I want to ask you a question. It's kind of a trick question. Do the Scriptures teach you to always rejoice. Do the Scriptures teach you to always rejoice? Okay, and what text would you be thinking about? 
Yeah, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Okay, here another question. Have you ever seen someone rejoicing in something and someone told them to, have you told them to stop rejoicing in whatever it was they were rejoicing in? If any of you all ever went up to someone, a brother or sister is rejoicing in something, and you come up to them and you say, brother, sister, do not rejoice in this. You ever done that? And then that brings in the question, how do I discern if it's wrong or not? That, that can be very complicated. Obviously, it's wrong to rejoice over people who are in ruin. It's wrong to rejoice when the wicked fall. Right? Those aren't things we should be rejoicing in. But can you think of a time that the Lord Jesus Christ, the very wisdom of God, the one with the greatest discernment of anyone who's ever lived, told His disciples to stop rejoicing in something? Yeah, turn to Luke 10. Turn to Luke 10. And this is really what we're looking at right now. It's really basic Christianity 101. But it's not that basic. I mean, when this really hit home to me, I think I had been in the faith about three years. And the truth, let me just say it up, up front, is this. that The idea that I'm going to want to leave you with... Here, answer this question. Why is one day good and another is bad? Why do you have joy one day and you don't have joy the next? Yeah, a lot of times it's, it's around circumstances, right? Your circumstances varying and that creates you to have joy or not to have joy. Here, another question is what is the ultimate source of joy for you as a Christian? Now, you know that in theory, right? But there's a difference between what I have up here compared to what I'm practically, how I'm functioning as a Christian on a day-to-day -day basis. Right? So everyone gets saved, and it's like, Christ is my greatest source of joy. But you know what happens to almost every Christian? At some point, they face a crisis where Christ Himself, in a way, is showing them it's not as real to you as you think it is. And the Lord gives you a greater depth and a greater joy in Him where no matter what's happening around you, you can re. Joyce, what we tend to do is make an idol out of our performance, our works, our success. We get joy from that rather than from the Lord Jesus Christ and His authority to forgive and to save our souls. So turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Um, let's look at this. Luke chapter 10. And if you actually, to get a little of the context, go to Luke if you go to Luke 9, right there, Luke 9, verse 1, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over the demons and to cure diseases. Right? So, leading up to what we're going to look at, Christ has actually given them power and authority over all the demons and to cure diseases. Then you go to Luke, Luke 9, 38. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my child. Behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. Verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out, and what happened? They couldn't. This is important. He's given them authority. They're seeking to exercise that authority, and they couldn't even cast that out. And then chapter 10, verse 1, After this, the Lord appointed 70 Two, after he's given these costs of discipleship, 
And he sent them ahead of them two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he sent them out into the harvest. And look what he says in verse 3. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Okay, you've got men going out who've been given authority to even cast out demons. There's already been a failed attempt to do that. And they're going out like sheep amidst of wolves. You understand the context here. This is really important. Because what's, what we're going to see is what's leading up to what they're saying is incredible in itself. And yet, with what Christ says to them, it should all the more surprise us. So here our text is. Luke 10, 17. This is my, my friend right here. The 72 return with joy. So imagine, um, you know, kind of like Manny just got back from Nepal. Right? He gives an update on how, how it went in Nepal. I mean, here you got how many people coming back giving an update? 72 of them. And apparently they're all thinking the same way. It's not like Joshua and Caleb with the spies where you got two coming back thinking differently. All 72 of them are having the same perception. Right? The 72 return with joy. With, with an inward happiness, a gladness, a delight. They felt blessed. I mean, can you blame them? I mean, you're given authority. You've already seen people not be able to cast out demons. The 72 return with joy saying, Lord, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. Look at Christ's response. Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's an interesting first line for the Lord Jesus responding to them. You don't think talk about biblical counseling right here? You've got an example of biblical counseling. It's not exactly what you would perceive it's going to be from the ACBC or whatever organizations. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. What's he kind of doing in those two verses? He's, he's really affirming to them, this exactly is true. I gave you this authority. This is from me. The very things that you saw happen, that should be happening. He's not saying that shouldn't happen. It should be happening. But here you got this famous word in verse 20. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. You catch that? Christ is telling them not to rejoice and then so you don't have to overly figure out what he's talking about, he explains it. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice in what? That your names are written in heaven. Have any of you had this passage stick out before? It's an incredible thought here that Christ is trying to put forward. So let's, let's, let's look at this. Um, let's look at this. Let's think about this. So first here... I'd say this, for one, this is not the prosperity gospel that's happening, right? These men didn't return back saying, Lord, look at all the riches and the nice cars and everything that you got that we got in your name. I mean, what happened was legitimately part of Christ's mission to see demons cast out. Right? They, they weren't, he affirms what they were doing is right. He's not saying this shouldn't be taken place. He's redirecting their emphasis on where their joy should be coming from rather than the fact that they had authority over the spirits. He's pointing them to the, His own authority to have their name written in heaven. I mean, would you even expect people to come back rejoicing in what Christ is saying rejoice in? 
I mean, if, if you had 20 guys who went downtown and you guys were praying and fasting and saw demons cast out of a demoniac and you came back and you said exactly what the disciples did here, do you think anyone in the church would kind of give you a check and say, I think, I think your emphasis is wrong? No. And you know what? What does that say about us? Oh, our discernment. <laughs> oh, our discernment is so lacking. This is really subtle what's happening here. You see, it's really subtle. It's not as obvious. It takes the very Lord Jesus Christ Himself to really see this happening. I mean, here's a question. Is, it, is there anything wrong with their, their response? All right, it doesn't seem like on the surface, but it is wrong. Why? How would we know it's wrong? Because Jesus corrects them. Right? So something on the surface that seems wrong to us is ultimately is wrong, and we see that through Christ and His response. And honestly, one of the difficulties with this, even with this passage is you, you, you don't necessarily, you can't get inside their hearts and necessarily see all the motivations that were happening. It's not exactly spelled out maybe as clearly as we would like. But yeah, He says, do not rejoice at this. I mean, He's commanding them. Don't rejoice at this. Rejoice in this. So Christ re, you know, redirects them to rejoice in something else. So He picks up on something in their coming home celebration. Right? Maybe Manny's coming home celebration from Nepal. Maybe you heard him and you picked up on, you know, you picked up on something. I mean, stuff like that can happen, right? You hear something and you wonder, is the emphasis right? Is this emphasis right or is... It not. He discerns something in the mission's report and in the, new, in the newsletter from the missionary that seems imbalanced. Right? Something just seems a little off. And Christ's response is the very wisdom of God giving this response. So, let's think here for a moment. How do we interpret Christ's response? Um, first, notice this. Is the first thing that He says is do not rejoice in this? No, He doesn't. Right? I mean, that's, that's really wise counseling. If you know there's something you really need to address in a firmer way with a person, you kind of start with affirmations. You affirm certain things that are true, and then eventually you get to the, the statement of you know, real correction and rebuke. So he doesn't say don't rejoice in this. I think he really first gives some affirmation because the work they are engaged in must indeed be happening. He's not telling them cease in your ministry activity. He's telling them to cease in what? Cease in finding the great source of your joy in your ministry activity being in the fact that you had authority over demons. Don't let that be the thing. Right? Let it be this thing over here, which we're going to see is Christ's authority to save us, to forgive us. Now, we could, we could spend a lot of time on this. I don't necessarily want to. I don't know what your own pastors, how they interpret verses 18 to 19. But let me just throw out a few thoughts. Right? He says in verse 18, Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I mean, what, what is he talking about? What's he, what's he doing in his response to these disciples? Why would he start with that? Okay, yeah, it could be a correction of, of pride. It could be the idea that they're saying, hey, look what we saw. And Christ is saying, Okay, you guys saw that. You know, look what I saw happen. You know, if he's talking about Christ or the devil's initial past falling 
that he witnesses the pre-existent son. Right? Is that what's happening? I mean, it could be. It could be what's happening. And he could be warning the disciples of some pride in them that was similar to whose pride before whose fall? Yeah, Satan. I mean, it could be it. And you find similar idea, you know, Paul saying, you know, don't let a, you know, a novice become an elder, right? Because they could become puffed up and they could fall into the condemnation of the devil. So that could be one option. Another option is he could be referring to the future falling of Satan's fall. This being a prophetic statement of the ultimate downfall of Satan. And he's just saying to them, yes, the, the present casting out of demons is part of what's leading to Satan's kingdom finally being destroyed. Right? So it could be kind of a correction towards pride, maybe most likely, or it could be an affirmation that, yeah, this, this is the present effect being produced on Satan's kingdom by your preaching. The NAS, it puts it this way, it says, I was watching Satan fall. Kind of makes it sound like Christ is saying, yeah, I saw exactly what was happening when you guys were casting out demons. And yeah, I gave you the very authority to go and do those very things. But don't let the work of the ministry, the work of the king, get in the way of the king himself. Right? Is that the idea of what's happening here? It seems like this is just one more eviction leading to the final defeat of the devil that we're witnessing happening here. He goes on in 1019 to kind of expound on this. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. In other words, I think he's kind of indicating what he just meant by seeing Satan fall like lightning. That it means they used his authority to have power over the enemy. And he's saying this is exactly what happened. So, I mean, those are, those are a few views on that. I don't think based on how you take what's happening there, that it ultimately changes the, the main point. Because he, he, already, he already makes it clear, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, right? And then he, that the spirits are subject to you. And the word subject, it's basically a synonym of the word authority that you have in verse 19. I have given you authority. Do not rejoice in this authority. And then he's saying, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Which, how does your name get written in heaven? It's taking authority. right? It's taking command of someone, in this case, the Lord Himself. Um, so, what, what, what is the point? Why do we even look at that? Guys, what's happening to them is incredible. I mean, this is amazing. They, they, they didn't have demons being cast out. And the 72 come back. They've seen demons cast out. They were like, what amidst wolves? Sheep amidst wolves. They didn't all come back getting martyred. They didn't come back and say like 30 of us got killed and five were burned on the stake. They come back rejoicing, seeing the power of God. Even then, in something that seems to be a reasonable thing to be overjoyed in, Christ gives them a check. He says, don't rejoice in that. You see, that to me is incredible. And again, this shows how subtle our heart can get away from the Savior. I mean, here these guys, they're, they're waging wars, Ephesians says, against cosmic powers over present darkness and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And they found victory. Whatever fear they had going out there as sheep amidst wolves, they found victory and they come back and they're rejoicing. And, and notice even what they say here. Um, the Lord, even the demons are subject in your name. So where are they emphasizing? This happened because of you. 
I mean, their emphasis is not even on themselves. It's not like they're coming back and saying the demons are cast out because of us. Their emphasis is on the Lord. Even with that, and even in the context of how amazing it is, still, Christ says, don't rejoice in this. Well, I thought, I thought we were to rejoice always. Yeah, if you're rejoicing in the right source and fountain at that moment. So I think, to me, this is amazing. That Christ doesn't get on board with the celebration, but He actually redirects it and gives them a check and a rebuke. To me, that is absolutely astonishing. And He says right there in 10.20, Nevertheless, meaning all of what I've said is true, it's not to discredit what happened. I'm not saying to do away with that. I'm not saying you should cease from going out there and casting out demons. But despite all of that, don't rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. Don't rejoice and think. The specific thing he's saying is the spirits are subject. Right? They are amazed at the authority that they're having in the name of the Lord. And there's some inordinate affection and rejoicing in the authority that they have now been given, which is a right authority, but in a way you could say they're abusing that authority. They're taking that authority in a way that is not to an extreme and a point it should not. And then he says rejoice. Let's think of this. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice in what? That your names are written in heaven. Okay. Has Christ died yet? No, he hasn't died yet. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I mean, yes, for us here, he has. <laughs> for them, I mean, Christ has yet to accomplish. <laughs> you need more coffee? <laughs> Christ has yet, yet to accomplish and finish the work on the cross. I mean, it hasn't happened yet. And he's making a statement you know, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I mean, what? He's illustrating heaven as a city by which his citizens' names are in a book. And those in the book have an inheritance and they have privileges. I mean, Paul's Romans passport, it got him out of a bind. Our names in the book get us out of a serious bind, an eternal lake of fire and damnation. And he says their names are in the book and yet Christ hasn't even died and finished the work. Wouldn't, I mean, that to me actually surprises me. But you know what? When you get to Ephesians 1, it shouldn't surprise you. What does Paul say there in Ephesians 1? Yeah, yeah before the ages began, He chose us in Him. And this is this is and he's saying this to them. Think think how certain it was that he was going to finish the mission. That he would get to the cross and John 19:30 would happen and he would say it is finished. I mean, he's making a security, a secure a statement to them of assurance, and he's not even risen from the dead. So there's an encouragement there. It says in Revelation, our names are written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. It says in 1 Peter 1.4, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Right? So in other words, what I think Christ is saying to you and me, Christ wants us to rejoice in the assurance and security we have because of His salvation, because even of His electing grace, because of His authority to forgive us of our sins, not in the authority that we have in the power and success that we see in the ministry. He doesn't want that to be the source of our joy. 
He wants the source of your joy to be in the authority and supernatural work that brought your salvation about, rather than your joy to be in the power and ministry success that you find as a believer. It's like Christ is saying, you've seen authority and power in the ministry? Nevertheless, you shouldn't rejoice in that. You should rejoice your name is written in heaven. You should rejoice in the authority that I've had to forgive your sins. I mean, is that, is that the ultimate source of your joy, Christian? Is that what makes your day happy? Or is your day great because everything went as you planned and you had great success in parenting, you had great success in whatever it is. And then you find, I feel a lot of joy right now at the end of the day. What's the main reason it's there? What's, what's going on in my heart here that's leading to my ultimate happiness? But, I mean, how many of you would have expected such a response from the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't think any of us would have. I mean, this is astonishing to me. This, even for us, brethren, you know what it makes you, you feel like when you go into a counseling meeting? You're praying for the discernment of the Holy Spirit of God to let you see things that you otherwise would not see at all. And the Lord is able even to give your pastors an insight into something in your life that they didn't even come into the meeting recognizing that. But it's like in the moment, there's something they see. It's kind of like talks about prophecy, you know, seeing into the hearts of men. It's like God just lets them see something there for their own benefit. I mean, this is a benefit for these 72. What would have happened if they wouldn't have had this check from the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah, and you know what? Before you know it, they're going to have a whole YouTube channel about going around casting demons out, and they're going to be like the sons of Sceva. It's just not going to end well. This one correction brought about to them helped them. I wish we would have seen more of their own response after the fact. I mean, you kind of do as you read through Luke, but it's not like you see them express something specific. Um, so yeah, how would you have responded even to Christ's very rebuke to you? Would you have gotten the idea of what He's trying to do to reject, re, redirect where your ultimate joy is coming from? So what's Christ saying He wanted them to come back rejoicing in? Yeah, I mean, imagine that though. You get back, you get back from the Paul. You saw all these demons cast out, and Manny gets up, and he's just rejoicing that his name's written in heaven. I mean, that wouldn't that kind of strike you as odd? It's not that none of these other things are being mentioned. I realize it really deals with an emphasis, right? There's an emphasis there. So you know what? You should not fault someone who rather than talk about the great works that they saw, you know what comes out of their mouth? They're just rejoicing in Christ's salvation. You should look at that and say, that is incredible. Right? That is absolutely incredible. Um, now, you know, one thing to realize here, I mean, did the guys that demons cast out, does, does demons being cast out mean those people even got converted? No, it doesn't. I mean, imagine... Those guys in Matthew 7, right? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do what? Cast out demons in Your name? Do you think their authority to cast out demons in the name of Christ come Matthew 7, 21-23 gave them a whole lot of comfort and joy on that day when they found out that the authority of Christ had never come and forgiven them of all of their sin? 
at that moment, you look at all that authority and the power you had and the mighty works and you realize it's absolutely nothing. If my name's not written in heaven, all of these other things are absolutely pathetic. So Christ thinking, He's trying to help them um, not, to, not to let the lesser mercy get in the way, but pointing them back to the greater mercy, right? He's saying keep being thankful for the giver, not the gift, right? Thankful for the giver and ultimately don't idolize the gift. So, think a couple more thoughts here. Yeah, I just had here. Well, I mean, so what if you could command demons to leave and yet God has not commanded and declared your guilt to be removed? I mean, that's the greatest thing, right? To legally be declared righteous in God's courtroom and to have an assurance in your name written in the book of life and have all of your sins blotted out. That is so amazing that any ministry success, any miracles in the ministry, it really, you get it into your perspective where you realize. That can't be the big thing. Christ has always got to be the big thing and the source of my joy. So after saying this, what do you think Christ would do? What do you think the very next thing the Lord Jesus does in His counseling session after counseling them and pointing them in the right direction? What do you think the great, wonderful counselor did? Yeah, he lived out what he said. Look at that. Don't, don't let the whole break there get in the way. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Okay, is he about to rejoice at all the demons that were cast out? Is that what we're about to read? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. He's talking about authority there. right? The same idea we just saw in the previous verses. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. You see, the fact I'm saved, I'm saved because He chose to reveal Himself to me. It's all of grace. My name's written in the book. Because he's done that. It's all of grace. It just, you know, it shatters all this other stuff. And I could not find another recorded place in all the New Testament where Christ greatly rejoices in something in all of the scriptures, except right here. You know, he talks about joy in other places, but here you actually see him in the same hour, right after teaching this, right after saying this, he rejoices in the Holy Spirit. And he says what he says. He doesn't, you know, he goes on. I, I actually stopped reading. Then, his, then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Right? You want to talk about being blessed? It's not demons cast out, guys. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. He doesn't say, Blessed are the eyes who saw demons cast out. He says, blessed are the eyes who see what you see. And what is he talking about? He's talking about the fulfillments of all of the prophecies of the Messiah coming in the flesh. I mean, you think, of, you think brethren, even what it says, what? Is it in 1 first, first Peter? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be, to be yours, they searched and inquired 
carefully. And what, what did the angels long to look into? Demons being cast out? What did the angels long to look into? What does it say in Hebrews? I think I had that verse somewhere in here. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the work of salvation. That's what they long to look into. And so he's speaking about knowing who the Son is. The greatest thing you can have is Christ being revealed to you. Um, let's see here. Think about it. What's the one thing you can rejoice in that will never lead to idolatry? That will never lead to something that's excessive? Yeah, it's the Lord. It's, it's salvation. It's what Christ has done. It's the cross. You, can't idol, you can idolize a physical wooden cross, sure. But you can't idolize the work of Christ on the cross. That's something Paul said, 1 Corinthians 2.2. What did he say? I have determined to know nothing among you except what? Yeah, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ, His person, crucified His work. That was the one thing Paul wanted to know. What do the angels rejoice over in heaven? Over one sinner who repents. 1 Peter 1.12 They preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Things which the prophets long to look. And Jesus says, you're seeing what they didn't see. You're hearing what they didn't hear. And you guys are over there talking about demons being cast out. Don't you see what I'm doing? I'm going to the cross to atone for your sins. And you're preoccupied with that? What a, what a rebuke from the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, have, my, have, my, have your sins been forgiven? I mean, notice what He says. Rejoice that your names are written in, the, in heaven. What's that imply? If you're a Christian, it implies what? You can have assurance. I mean, he's wanting you to rejoice in something that's very certain. It implies you can have assurance. And he's saying this to people who are still yet living in the period before he's actually finished the work. It's not like they walked around and didn't have assurance. All right. So, so you, see, you see my point? We're going to look at a couple examples in, in church history here in a minute. But your salvation never changes. Right? Your ministry can change. Your ability to use certain spiritual gifts could change. Your effectiveness, apparently, from what you can see with your own eyes, it could change. All these things can change. But the constant source of joy, no matter your circumstances, that will never change, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, this is really basic, but brethren, we've got to actually live that out. Right? And here, here's something I heard as a new Christian from Paul Washer along these lines, and it really... It really helped me. Paul said this, do you ever get up in the morning and you had your quiet time and you felt the presence of God and you were then and you were studying the Word of God and God seemed to speak to you and then you go out and you witness to everybody and you're obedient. And boy, you just did it right that day. I mean, you were just on top of the world. You loved your wife. You didn't kick the cat. You're just walking with God and you're so full of joy at the end of the day. Okay, that's day number one. What's the next day going to look like? Then the next day you get up. Well, you overslept. You shouldn't have watched the program that night before. You should have been in the Word. You didn't witness when you had an opportunity. And there's a real sense in which you're filled with sorrow. And you know what it is? Idolatry. 
You've become the source of your own joy. Your joy comes from you and your continuous work. My joy comes from the finished work of Jesus Christ. You catch that? I think that's what's happening right here. Jesus is putting that emphasis on them. Brethren, you can't, you can't get to the end of the day. You should get to the end of the day and be able to praise God for His help. But you know what? You should get to the end of the day and even if you didn't feel help, you should still be able to do what? Praise God and rejoice in your salvation in Christ. And so this is basic Christianity. Even when my performance is not what I desire it to be, I must not respond with self-pity. I must not respond with discouragement, depression. I can still have great joy at that moment because of Christ. Even with everything going on in our church back in San Antonio, I can't let any of that steal my joy. Because the ultimate source of my joy, it's not the state of the church, it's Christ and the state of my own soul before Him. Um, should we have sorrow over failures? Yes. Right? Christ isn't saying, you know, Paul says to the believers, you are my joy and my crown. It's not to say that there isn't joy from these other things, but don't let that joy overpower this great joy of Christ and your name being written in heaven. What if they would have returned and no demons were cast out? I mean, listen, would those 72 have been rejoicing that their names were written in heaven? See, you don't, you don't have authority in a smaller way, but the authority of the Lord to forgive, it still stands. In that, you can find joy and rejoice. Yet many, you know what? You have no sin involved. You didn't sin at all that day. There's no way you grieve the Spirit, but you don't see any visible fruit and you get depressed. That's wrong. That's unbelief. That's a lack of persevering and drinking from the fountain of Christ's joy and following Him. And so think, brethren, Christ is such a wonderful counselor. I mean, he, he observes their countenance with joy. He hears one statement from them, and then He confidently gives them a check and a rebuke. He points something out that was broken in their thinking, and He sets them straight and corrects them. I mean, you should pray for your pastors to have that type of wisdom to help you guys. Right? Um, honestly, I think most of us miss it entirely. At times, because it's so subtle. It's so subtle. Yet here we got a first count example of this counselor. And this honestly isn't the only time this happens in the chapter. Just briefly look at the end with Martha and Mary. I mean, what, what was Martha? Martha was distracted with much serving, right? She was really busy. And what did Christ tell her? He basically rebuked her for wanting her sister to get up and help out. And he says, No, one thing is necessary. I mean, that's what's happening in Luke 10. You got these two examples at least where it's just saying one thing is necessary, it's Christ. It's getting your joy from Christ. It's sitting and learning of Him. It doesn't mean we don't go and serve, but you go serve in the joy and the strength of the Lord. Think about it. How many missed it here in Luke 10? 72. You know what that means? How many of us are here? There's not even 72 of us. That means all of us could be blind to something in our lives and not recognize it. It's kind of a humbling reality. You know what we also learned from this? Is the disciples' ability to handle success, is it easy to handle success? Oh, it's not easy. 
Success has been a curse for many a man because it takes them out with pride. It's scary. So I'll ask you this question. Do you currently have a misplaced area that you are rejoicing in that is only subtly discerned? Has there been some shift in your heart where you, you Christian, have been like these guys? You have overly rejoiced in something and your emphasis has not been on Christ and what He has done. Listen, listen to this. This truth, this friend here, this verse was really helpful for Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was on his deathbed dying of throat cancer. When you're a preacher dying of throat cancer, what's that imply? You can't preach, right? Tony Sargent records this in Sacred Anointing, page 128. When in good health and preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, listen to Lloyd-Jones. I have seen men who have been untiring in the work of the kingdom suddenly laid aside by illness and they scarcely know what to do with themselves. Okay, Lloyd-Jones said that in a sermon. That's great. Kind of like me saying something in a sermon. That's great, James. You said it in a sermon. What's the response? James, when you face the bridge and got to cross it, are you going to live that out? So, we have writings of Lloyd-Jones that actually say what happened. So Lloyd-Jones said this, right? And D.A. Carson relayed this. When Lloyd-Jones was dying of cancer, one of his friends and a former associate asked him, in effect, how are you managing to bear up? I mean, you've been accustomed to preaching several times a week. You have begun important Christian enterprises. Your influence has extended to Christians on five continents through tapes and books. And now you've been put on the shelf. You're reduced to sitting quietly, sometimes managing a little editing. I'm not so much asking, therefore, how are you coping with the disease itself? Rather, how are you coping with the stress of being out of the swim of things related to the ministry? How do you think Lloyd-Jones responded? What friend did Lloyd-Jones have that was tied around his finger, that was an intimate friend in that moment to call upon? It was this text. And he quoted to that guy, do not rejoice in this that the Spirit's Submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Ian Murray says this, Lloyd-Jones saying in context of quoting that verse, bear that in mind, he said solemnly, our greatest danger is to live upon our activity. The ultimate test of a preacher is what he feels like when he cannot preach. Our relationship to God is to be the supreme cause of joy. To lean upon our sermons or words of testimony from others is a real snare for all preachers. We cannot lean on their testimonies. Right? You hear that? The ultimate test of a preacher is what he feels like when he cannot preach. That's for all of us. It doesn't matter if you're not a preacher. You are all being tested. Is the great source of your joy your relationship with Christ? Carson said, it's so easy to rejoice in success. Our self-identity may become entangled with the fruitfulness of our ministry. One other quote here. Sargent said this about Lloyd-Jones' response. His inner convictions that the preacher should be engaged in an ever-deepening relationship with the Lord. When he perchance is no longer able to function as a preacher, he will still be able to go on enjoying 
the fellowship of the one whose company he has sought down through the years. Is that what your life is about right now as a Christian? Is it about seeking the company and the fellowship of Jesus Christ? That no matter what happens at the church, no matter what happens at your ministry, no matter what happens with your family, no matter what happens with your health, you're still going to have joy and rejoice in all circumstances because the Lord has controlled your circumstances. But believer, you can get saved and that it can totally shift. You can make a total idol out of your performance. And it, it just happens. And you just feel good because things are going great for you. Things are looking bright. And you know what? In our whole Reformed community, there's so much ammunition to just feed this big beast of, of idolizing ministry, idolizing success. Uh, I was talking to a brother in a church in Austin who used to be a pastor. Um, um, he never pastored in Austin, but pastored elsewhere. He said the whole culture in the church was you had to be in the ministry. You felt like that was superior. You all needed to become elders. He prematurely became an elder in the church and he said it just wrecked his family because he neglected them for the sake of the ministry. And so the even reformed culture can encourage this. The last thing they're doing is rebuking people on rejoicing it. It's, it's like you know, one brother said at a conference, it's kind of like they have scorecards up after they preach and you're kind of grading their preaching and saying, who did the best job at the conference? It's like, what's that? What's all this... Becoming. What, what moves you to work for the Lord? Is it success or is it Christ Himself? What drives you? Is it success or Christ Himself? You guys know the missionary from Lebanon. I'm sad he didn't get to make it out to visit you all. Uh, his, his van broke down. But listen to this. Years ago, he bought a bus. His old bus, and he, he repaired it. It was actually the one he was trying to drive to get here that broke down. But the initial reason he got the bus is his plan was to go and give people rides and evangelize to them as he took them to the beach. And I made this statement to him. I said, yeah, it'll all be worth it as long as one person gets saved. And you know what he said to me? He said, no, James. It'll be worth it even if no one gets saved because I'm obeying Christ. I'm doing the next right thing that Christ wants me to do. I was shocked. Because I thought you only do things for Christ because there's, there's maybe going to be a result from it. And his whole perspective was different. It was, I'm going to obey the Savior. I'm going to pray for results. But whether results come or they don't, I'm just obeying the Lord. And you know what happened? That brother with that type of mindset, he goes over there to Lebanon. You hardly see any fruit for a few years. And now there's all this fruit. And you know what? If that fruit ceases and it stops, it's not going to mess him up because he wasn't over there for success. He wasn't over there for results. He was over there because his personal walk with Christ demanded he do the next right thing. And no matter what happened, he's just seeking to obey his Savior. You see, it's not about the ministry. It's about a deepening relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. That's the right perspective. Um, so replace this statement. They return with joy because of what? Success. Man, I evangelized so well. Man, our parenting game was so good. I mean, we were better than all the parents that Sunday. <laughs> you know, I mean, whatever. I mean, you, you, should I be glad that parenting's going okay? Sure, that's not wrong. I mean, you know, you, but what are, what are some things that maybe you've put before Christ? 
What's something King David put way before the Lord? Why don't you go count all the men out there? Let's see how many troops we've got. Because they're about to make another census and we want this to get recorded in the book of Chronicles. And I know there's no battle coming up, but boy, I'd really like it to be recorded what numbers we've got. What happened to him? You're going to go boast in your numbers, David? God wiped out thousands. Right? I mean, a classic example. Young preacher, he puts a sermon on the internet. He goes and he looks. How many views did it get? Is his, should his joy be different if it got five views or five million? If it's different, what's that really indicating? It's not about, I mean, it's not about Christ right there. It's about some form of success. Quantity does not mean success. Joe Olstein has a lot of people at his church. Does that mean that the church is a successful church? Not at all. Um, so yeah, replace that. They return with joy in what? Right? What, what did they return with joy in? What would Jesus say? I think He'd say, Nevertheless, Christian, rejoice in this, that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice in Me. And ironically, the greatest success that you and I have is something that He has done for us. Right? It's, it's something that has been all of the grace of Christ. We can't boast in it. Okay, let me, I just have a few more thoughts. Bear with me. Have you guys heard of a midlife crisis? Right? Now, most of you, you're kind of young. You guys are a little older maybe. But what, the world has a term called the midlife crisis. You know what? That happens spiritually. And you know what a lot of it happening spiritually revolves around? People missing this very principle in Luke 10. Missing this very principle. They get to 40 or 50, and they thought, man, all that potential I had when I was 25, everything didn't exactly pan out how I thought it was going to be. I thought everything was going to look this way by the time I was 40 or 50. But unexpected health problems, trials in the church... Things happen. Your dreams don't come true. Should you still be rejoicing? Yeah. Because your joy is about a relationship with Christ. It's not about all the success. Success, if God gives it, praise the Lord. But it tests us. What is our joy really for? Paul Tripp, don't know a ton about him, but he had a book called The Midlife Crisis. And this is a very, very helpful quote. Let me read this. Midlife crisis in its most basic form is not an event crisis. It's not an awareness crisis. It's not a crisis of you're getting older and aging. It's a crisis of the heart. Midlife exposes what a person has really been living for and where a person has tried to find meaning and purpose. It has the power to reveal the significant gap between a person's confessional theology and their functional theology. What we say we're living for on Sunday might not in fact be the thing that has actually taken daily rulership over our hearts. And when these things that rule us are taken out of our hands, we tend to be angry, fearful, bitter, or discouraged. We'll experience a loss of identity and a flagging of meaning in purpose. You know what, guys? Every one of you, we're all going to face something at some point like that. But if your great joy is in Christ, 
it's not going to phase you. It's not going to rock the boat. Because you have Christ. And you hear that again. A person's confessional theology and their functional theology, there, there's a difference there. There's a difference there. So what, what keeps you going? What keeps you going? What makes life worthwhile? What are you convinced of that you've got to have? Why is one day good and another is bad? I mean, think, how would you answer those questions? What is a woman's ultimate purpose in life? Say again? Nope. Yeah, to honor and glorify the Lord. Right? Yet, what does a woman do? Her role for many years in her life is a role as what? A wife and a mother. But eventually that role might end. The kids grow up. The husband dies. And what's the woman going to face? An identity crisis. Because she thought her main role in life was that of a mother. Or her main purpose in life was that of a mother and a wife. But the real goal and purpose in all of our lives is to glorify God. Your role changing shouldn't cause you to despair. You know, I know a brother who was a pastor recently stepped down. After many years of pastoring, he should still be able to go on because Christ was what he was living for. So, do you see it? Don't let your performance, your role, which can end and be taken from you, which could pass its course, don't let that be the great source of joy. Let it be Christ. Why did Paul remain with the Christians at Philippi? What does he say? I've remained with you all for your what? I've remained with you all for your progress and joy in what? Your joy in the faith. Right? I mean, Paul's sticking it out with these believers because he wants them to have a greater joy in the faith. Right? It's, that's, that's this emphasis that we find. Even in Philippians 4, he says, Rejoice always in the Lord. Right? If your identity is in Christ, you're able to continue to rejoice in Christ. And even I know Nick's been going through a biography of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? On his Sunday sermons. You want to take the truths that he's presenting about Christ and find great joy in those truths. Because they're really going to get you and help you, maybe even at a later point in your life when you come to some crisis. Well, I think that's all I have um, for right now. But you guys get what I'm trying to, trying to say. Right? So that's, that's one of my friends right there. Jesus rebuking people for rejoicing they could cast out spirits and telling them to rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Make your relationship with Christ the great source of your joy. Don't let your performance, don't let success take that away. Let's pray.